Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Behind the Blue podcast. I'm Cody Kaiser with UK Public Relations and Strategic Communications, and I'm joined this week by UK Chief Communications Officer Jay Blanton. Our guest today on Behind the Blue is Crystal Wilkinson, an associate professor in the Department of English in the UK College of Arts and Sciences. Born in Hamilton, Ohio, but raised in Casey County, Professor Wilkinson is an award-winning author and the 2019 Shepherd University Appalachian Heritage Writer-in-Residence. Her first collection of short stories, Blackberries, Blackberries, earned her a Chafin Award for Appalachian Literature. Her second book, Water Street, was nominated for the UK Orange Award and placed on the shortlist for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. She's a journalism graduate of Eastern Kentucky University and completed her MFA degree in creative writing at Spalding University in Louisville. For nearly a decade, she worked as a public information officer for the Lexington Fayette Urban County Government and in 1997 became assistant director for the Carnegie Center for Literacy and Learning in Lexington, a position contiguous with her teaching in the Governor's School for the Arts. In 2016, Wilkinson published her novel, The Birds of Opulence, which received much acclaim, including the Weatherford Fiction Award and the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence, and was chosen as the 2020 Agrarian Literary League selection at the Wendell Berry Center. Now the book has been selected by Kentucky Humanities for the 2021 Kentucky Reads. The novel will be at the center of statewide conversations on the dynamics of family and community, the strength of women, and stigmas surrounding mental illness. Kentucky Reads will offer 25 scholar-led discussions of the Birds of Opulence to community organizations throughout the Commonwealth. So, first of all, welcome to Behind the Blue. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Wilkinson. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. This is a uh, long uh, list of accomplishments. I know that you've barely scratched the surface of this. Your current book, uh, there's a lot to this. All of this to say you finished a book, but the book is certainly not finished with you. Is that Would that be correct to say? That is correct. Yeah, that's correct. Um, when I talk about it coming out in 2016, it's it's hard for me to believe it. It's been, that seems like a long time for me as a writer, because of course I've written other things then since then that are sort of in the line waiting to get published. But it's, uh, I keep calling it the, the little book that could, because uh, special things keep happening to it. And of course, I'm grateful for all of those, all of those things that are happening. Small rural communities, like many here in Kentucky, like the one you grew up in, I, I think that, and I'm from a small community as well in Northeastern Kentucky. I think they, in a lot of ways, pride themselves on being known to come together and support each other in times of need. Um, you address kind of the stigma of mental illness and the toll it takes on families. Do, do you think that it often causes those families to sometimes suffer in silence because community members don't know how to address this particular area? Um, I think so. I mean, a lot of this, the book is totally fiction, but some of uh, the idea for the book or the, the germ of the idea behind the book um, was hinged in my, my mother. My, my mom was a, um, a paranoid schizophrenic um, and was diagnosed in her 20s in, in our family. And um, I just remember um, sort of the silence around that and, and the words, of course, country people use different words anyway, but um, sort of the silence and, um, you know, it was really sort of unspoken uh, to talk about her illness. Um, you know, we have words like in, in, the, in the common language, like 
nervous breakdown or, you know, remember when she had that spell and those sort of things. And so there were ways to walk around mental illness um, in my own family, um, in the larger community, you know, in the state and I think across the nation. Um, But I think sort of a microcosm of the of the nation in in small towns because everyone knows each other and uh no one wants to talk about any of the eels if if you want to call them that um and so i think that's very common not knowing what to say um not knowing what to do um so you just find coping me- mechanisms and you just just keep going and i think that's what a lot of people do in small towns uh, in regard to that and in regard to other things. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that there's some commonalities there and some crossover, um, you know, in relation to substance abuse issues mm-hmm. in small communities as well. And that people some that often don't know how to address it uh, as far as how to, how to even categorize it as right. uh, a, an actual physical uh, condition or a moral failure um, and, and often that gets kind of conflated. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm really interested in is the way that we, um, I'm interested in the small town period, not just mine, but the small town, uh, the Kentucky small town. I'm, I'm interested in um, sort of uh, black townships across the state. And um, I find that, of course, there's a lot of commonalities, uh, common at- <laughs> There's a lot of things in common commonalities uh, in the way that we treat those things. But as a writer, as an artist, I find myself um, intrigued with the language and what we call things. You know, my grandmother used to call, which is part of the name of the birds of opulence. My grandmother used to say, you know, oh, your mom sure is a bird. Uh, You know, and you were talking about drinking. If somebody's drinking, um, there were words, beautiful language like, Sheets in the wind, six sheets, ten sheets, however many sheets in the wind. Um, he takes a little nip now and again, or he takes a little uh, takes a nip too often. So I'm interested in uh, the colloquial language too that that goes with um, the sort of cloaked nature and the secrets um, of things in those small communities. How did growing up in a in a small community like that inform your writing personally? Like to for you to personally be able to kind of get into the mindset. I know that you you pull from personal experience, but uh, also to to find that voice of people in rural areas and tell those stories. Well, I think it you know some of it came from being a very quiet child. Um, I was always the child in the corner and that didn't speak. So a lot of both the the oral connection and the oral connection, um, speaking, storytelling, and listening um, were all a part of um, <clears throat> the communal identity and my personal identity. So I think that um, became something that was natural for me to do, and it sort of translated into into my writing um, because I took everything in, and I was so quiet that I was often. You know, here's another saying my grandmother would say, um, you know, that children should stay out of grown folks' business. Um, But I was always a child, like, up under the table and so quiet, so unseen, as often children are, meant to be seen, not heard, that no one would know that I was there. And I would have heard all of these 
secrets that, you know, my grandparents were telling or the older people were telling. And then they'd look and say, what are you doing under there? Um, so part of that just seeped in, I think. And um, because I didn't talk very much, writing was my primary mode of expression early on. And, uh, of course, I was influenced by um, the cadence of the preacher and the ways that old people spoke, the ways that people speak and um, speak and still hold their tongues about secrets. Um, and those are all things that I'm interested in still writing about. Um, they're all aspects of small communities that have kind of seeped into me and seeped into the, into the writing. I think I've noticed in some interviews with you too, though, that you've talked fondly about what it was to grow up in in that setting um, and how much you enjoyed parts of it too, I think. And I, and I wonder how, how does your, how, do, how in your fiction do you sort of navigate honoring that and talking about that, but then also some of these other really heady, tough issues that we're talking about. That's got um, to be an interesting negotiation. Yeah. I mean, it's all a part of it, right? It's sort of the, the continuum of, uh, of life uh, period. And then life in a, in a small town, it's, it's all a part of it. It's not all um, for a long time. I romanticized the way that I grew up and I still do um, think of it all fondly, like my connection to nature, um, that sort of communal nurturing that I had. Um, I was raised by my grandparents, but I felt like I was raised by a church. I was raised by a community. Um, and then, you know, there were other things that happened. There was, there was racism. There was this sort of, like I, I talked about these secrets that were kept. And um, I just think it's all a part of it. Just like, not just in Appalachia or in a small town. It's, I think it's a part of the human condition that there is both good and bad and, um, having to balance it. So if I told only the good and I never talked about the bad, I wouldn't be showing the, the full truth. And if I, and vice versa, if I talked only about the bad and never, never showed the good and, and what's excellent and wonderful um, about growing up in a small community, um, you know, nature being one of the, the top ones for me, like being that close to nature, I, I, I still miss it even uh, even now, even though I've been away from home for a long time, but I think it, it taught me something being in, in uh, connection with nature taught me, um, patience, kindness, not that people from other, uh, geographies don't, don't have that, but I think that that's something that you, um, something that you can gather from living in a rural area. Working as, um, you spent 10 years with uh, Lexington Fayette Urban County Government as mm-hmm. the public information officer, which is, you know, a very different kind of communication, um, you know, in its structure and, and, and style, obviously, from from um, literature or poetry. Um, but it does seem like there's uh, there's some maybe crossover there of, of kind of um, – uh, crafting communication did that do you find that that kind of helped you along the way yes i mean i think i've always uh written creatively so i was always writing poems and stories but uh part of my job when i was there um at um 
the Lexington Fayette Urban County government was, um, you know, telling the stories of the people who worked there because um, I was in charge of uh, the newsletter. So, you know, in, in the course of a day, I might write a, a help write a speech for the mayor. Um, and then I might go out to sanitation and interview uh, the sanitation workers. Or I might go out and do a feature on someone at the fire department. Or I might, you know, do something else with one of the other um, chief executives in the government. And so um, that sort of variety um, sort of as a, as a fiction writer translate to, to character, right? Um, and being able to sort of excise information from those people that um, that the public could could use or so the public could see um, the human side of the mayor, the mayor's office, that it wasn't just an executive office, that there was human beings who worked there. And these are some of the, the features about them or the people who pick up your trash that are, are out in the snow and in the rain. Um, you know, they have families, they have hobbies, they have, uh, so it's, it's similar, very similar, I think, to um, sort of conjuring up a fictional character. And still, you know, when I'm talking about um, small towns, one of my, one of my, one of the things that I'm doing is sort of paying, paying homage to uh, small town life. How did you make that transition from that kind of work to, to writing of fiction and, and uh, is a full-time uh, sort of occupation? I know you've done a lot of different things. And then also the leap again to teaching. Uh, I know you've taught at a number of institutions, including the university. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how did, tell us a little bit about that, that process. Cause I know at some point that had to be some jumps and leaps of faith a little bit, I would guess. Uh, Sure. Uh, well, again, I've always written and always been sort of connected to um, the writing community. So while I was working as a public information officer, I was also going to conferences um, whenever there was a, a reading or someone published a book. I would go to all of those events. And, you know, I had my my writing sort of under under the bed and not really telling anyone uh, that much about it. Um, and then I made a transition from the urban county government to, I worked everywhere, actually. I worked for the Hope Center for a while. And so I was sort of the the public relations face of um, the primary homeless shelter um, here in Lexington uh, for a while. And then when I went to the Carnegie Center, where I was an assistant director, uh, I was also in charge of public relations. So these segues weren't as these leaps weren't as weren't giant ones, but at the Carnegie Center uh, is where I taught my first class, which was a a public class um, teaching adults uh, about writing. And I think the first one was just sort of an artistic expression class. And I taught a poetry class and I wanted to teach a fiction class. So I taught a fiction class. And I think that's where I got sort of the teaching bug um and decided that's something that i wanted to do so 
even before I, I got my advanced degrees, I um, I was teaching. Um, I taught at, uh, once my books got published, I taught at Eastern and uh, taught at some other places and um, was sort of known as a, a creative writing instructor before I became a professor. And so that's, um, that's how I made the, the segues weren't really leaps. They were sort of progressive movements uh, toward, toward what I do now. And how specifically did you come to the UK? Um, I, there was a position open um, in fiction um, and I was teaching at Berea, uh, Berea college and um, teaching undergraduates um, creative writing. And I have, I was teaching um, at Spalding and I'd also previously taught it at IU in their MFA program. So I, I had a, a longing to teach graduate students again and um, was excited that um, UK had an MFA in creative writing program. Um, and so um, that's how I made that transition from, from Berea um, to UK. Um, my primary interest was in um teaching both undergraduates and, and graduates fiction and literature. What is that experience like? What, what do you take away from that working with students and, and helping them um, find their voice and, and, and hone their, 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 I, I guess in some ways young and, and rough skills as writers? Yeah, that's probably one of the most rewarding things about about what I do next to my own writing is watching someone else find their voice. Um, and and sometimes you'll watch a student sort of struggle with um, with career paths and they may be good writers, but they never even thought about creative writing before. Um, that's the the. That's the beauty of mostly at UK, I end up teaching these two extremes, right? So I'll teach English 107, which is the intro to creative writing class, and I'll teach 607, which is the graduate level um, fiction class. And so it's interesting to see uh, students at that blossoming, blossoming point, that point where they, they come into the class just to take it for credit for core, a core credit. And so they're not so sure. Maybe, maybe they're majoring in, they could be majoring in anything. Uh, and they come in and they, and to see them get the bug, I call it getting the bug. You see, uh, even with 150 students, you can see, uh, even on zoom, you can see that. Like you see a, you give them a writing exercise and they, they thought, well, you know, what do I do? How do, do I just make this up? Like, what are you talking about? Like, how do I do this? And you teach them how to tap into their imagination. And then all of a sudden you see it, uh, this sort of light bulb to be cliche light bulb goes off. And, uh, suddenly they have that confidence. Well, maybe I can write a poem. Oh gosh, I wrote a poem. Um, maybe I can write a short story. Um, and then sort of to, to nurture that and then to hear from them. Of course, I haven't been at UK very long, but, um, I have a long teaching history now. And so it's interesting to have had someone at, uh, in beginning creative writing and then you hear from them 
you know, let's say 10 years later and they say, I want, I want you to see my first book or I want you to see that I, uh, you get a link because they published a poem in a public, you know, in a, in a reputable journal or they published a short story. Um, so that's the magic, I think, in in teaching uh, Credit Friday. And I find the same thing when I'm teaching literature. Um, that sort of um, not just in the moment, but the sort of sustained connection or the sustained impact you have with a student. Um, maybe if you have a student come in at the 100 level, you end up teaching them. They come back to you when they can at a, at a 200 level, 300 level, and then they go out and they do what they do. Um, and you still, uh, get to see them blossom and grow. And I, I hear back from, uh, a lot of literature students too, about, um, lit classes that they've taken from me over the years. I would think that our students currently, you know, it's having you as a professor and, and being, you being part of a, uh, we have a, a, a group of very talented writers. We've, we've had very talented writers at the university. We currently have a very strong group of, of writers who are published. Uh, I would imagine that that's uh, been a good resource to have, to have that community uh, from a teaching standpoint, but also, you know, for students as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to extend that in, in every direction, you know, one of the other things I do at UK is that um Right now, I'm, I coordinate uh, with a graduate student the Visiting Writers Series. And so they have all of us um, who are in-house and then to, to bring in other writers um, from across the country, too, of, of all, um, you know, all different kinds of writers, uh, nonfiction writers, poets, um, emerging writers who maybe have their first publications all the way to people who have um, a very long, um, a long time reputable um, career in writing um, and to expose our students to, you know, not just us, but to them as well, I think is, uh, is rewarding for me. And I, and I, I think, and I hope that it's rewarding to the students as well. Do, do you find that the teaching informs your writing? to or or in in some ways or is there an interplay there at all yeah i think um it it definitely does um teaching has always informed informed my writing uh in some ways um all the way from the the idea stage to um some um i was i think it was about a maybe a year ago i had a student who um was telling me his revision technique. Um, and I'd never heard this before. I never really thought about it. It's not anything sort of like groundbreaking, but it was just an idea. And he said, well, for me, one of the things I've learned to do is um, take a piece of white paper and go down my, my story and look at it line by line. And of course you can do that on your computer, but he was talking about printing it out. And that's a small thing, but um, I had never thought about that before. Uh, So that's something that I do. Uh, Or to hear, you know, one of the things about creative writing is that taking something familiar uh, or, or something large and abstract, like 
something we all feel like grief or love or anger and to be able to present an image that presents grief or love or anger or some other huge abstract concept that means so much to us um, in a brand new way. Yeah, that just gives me cold chills when I, when I run across that in a student's work and uh, it, it, inspires me to be more more creative and try to find that that spark that surprise in my own work um, when I'm writing too and sometimes I write with students um, I can't do that in that that group of 150 <laughs> when I'm teaching uh, 107 but um, you know three four five hundred level um, students when I give them an exercise, um, I'll do the exercise with them um, to show them that that my rendition of the exercise is rough too. I mean, I don't do it all the time, but I'll do it at least once a semester so they can see. And and I have the same reaction as them, like, mm, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to read mine. And then they're often surprised that, oh, well, hers wasn't that good either. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> I find that <laughs> I find that inspirational. How, how has our current situation with uh, the, this pandemic we're dealing with has that changed your teaching style? Uh, have you been able to do in person classes? Is it important as a, a writing community for students to be able to? How do they How do they cross that divide? Well, I think um, I have not. Um, I have family members who have. Um, have health conditions. Um, so I've not wanted to teach in person. I have health conditions, so I haven't wanted to teach in person um, while all of this has been going on. But I think you try to find ways. There's so many things that we do in a, in a community of writers, and that's what I try to establish, that we do things where we share things, and I have them do exercises where they fold things up and they pass them around to give each other um, new ideas and you can't really do that you can't break up in groups in the same way you can in zoom um, so all of those things are sort of missing but when I'm teaching virtually now um, I think I put so much more Effort. Like one of the things I do in that large 107 group, of course, it's a large, it's usually in a large lecture hall is that I walk and pace and uh, try to be, you know, have my energy up and be big so, so I can talk to that group um, and having to do that behind a computer um, and still give a good lecture uh, and get my energy up uh, has been different, but it's, it's a, uh, been fun too um, to try to recreate that for students and to have them you know give me energy back um, from that and um, I think there are ways like um, at the beginning I was really skeptical about like how in the world do you create a writing community uh, via zoom and you know, of course, we were all doing it, but a little part of me was saying, this is impossible. This is not going to, we can't do this. Um, and of course, 
a, a year later, you know, of course we have, you know, of course we've been able to do that and still have these moments of uh, epiphany and moments of warmth and moments of community and um, moments of uh, intellect and craft and all those things that we, that we hope for and do in person. So um, not, Nothing will ever replace face-to-face, but I think that um, it's been amazing what can occur um, virtually. Do you think it will, assuming, I think we all assume and hope, will return to normal at some point in the not-too-distant future, but do you think the experience of teaching online or via Zoom or however, does that change any of your teaching in the future or ways you think about it or ways you do it? Um. I mean, yes. I mean, I think it certainly will inform. I think you know, all of our lives are changed uh, forever uh, for a variety of reasons. From this, I don't think there's uh, we won't go back uh, in the same way. And so, what one thing that it makes me think about is um, that there are no limitations to the classroom. If you can teach uh, something that's communal virtually then there whatever the other obstacles are are probably not obstacles at all um there are really no limitations i think that's one thing that we've that i've certainly got out of this um i mean i think it'll change the way i look at um you know things like um just meeting with students and um if someone's um, one of us is is ill in some way or incapacitated, like there there are ways now to to communicate um, and for it to be a meaningful communication. I wonder. I know we, we've uh, Cody and I've interviewed before and had on. I think a couple of times at least Frank X Walker on the podcast and mm-hmm. talked some about the um, Appalachian poets and, and, and you're a cornerstone member of that. What What's the significance of that movement to you and that, that, that organization? I know Nikki Finney was, was very involved and was a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, but wh- where does that group stand now in the evolution of what it's doing and its meaning today? Well, I think it's still going on. We have lots of um, members who are um, much younger than Frank and I. Frank and I are, are the same age and grew up in small towns 30 minutes or so from each other. Um, our first cousins are married. <laughs> so we've got a, a long, uh, married to each other. So we, we've got a long uh, term connection, but I think the Afrolachian poets um, gave us all permission. You know, one of the things it did for me was um, it was the first place that I could come and be both my Appalachian self and my black self in the same space. Uh, where I could could claim my ruralness uh, and my blackness, and I think that that was important um, to give voice, um, both in writing uh, and a verbal voice to 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 who who I am, and I think that's what happened with all of us. You know. Frank uses this term, which I use all the time, too, to make the invisible visible. 
like it's still sort of an ongoing I think situation uh you know whenever I'm on book tour and I'm at a, another large city in in um the country it it never fails that you see sort of a cocked head uh when they hear the bio and they're trying to figure out like you know are there are you sure there are black people in Appalachia are you really you know <laughs> and um so we have these conversations over and over and I think as long as I have to have that conversation or we have to have that conversation, there's a need uh, for the Afro-Latin poets uh, and a need for that sort of incubator space for, for artists um, to have, you know, sort of straight backs to be able to, to hold their back straight and um, march into their work and produce work on the other side. We have so many um, young poets that, that Frank and I and Kelly and Nikki nurtured even in, in high school now that are um, on the other side now have um, gone on um, to get their MFAs or, or PhDs and um, they have books coming out or have had books coming out. And so um, I think as an art incubator for uh, writers that come out of this sort of combined uh, experience, love for family, love for space, um, that there will continue be a, to be a need for the Appalachian poets. What does that mean to you to now be so intertwined with literary traditions, not only of the University of Kentucky, but the Commonwealth of Kentucky? Like your work is now, and, and you are, forever intertwined in this group of people well um it means the the world to me because there was a, a period of time um with my work where there was sort of an expectation from a african-american writer to write more urban that there was this sort of expectation you know, beyond the Alice Walkers, it's come back around now. So you have like Jasmine Ward who writes about rural spaces and you have uh, other writers who are doing that. But um, there was a, a period of time where there was an expectation of um, of, of an urbanness. Uh, and I think it means a lot to me um, as a Kentucky writer um, because it it combines all my experiences. I say that when birds came out and it won Appalachian book of the year and it won the Ernest Gaines award, I said, okay, I'm done. You know, like I felt like that, that was, that was it, that that was the pinnacle for me to be um, accepted both as Appalachian and to be uh, accepted by one of, you know, in one of the best um, African-American writers who writes ruralness um in our country uh it felt like that that was the perfect the perfect fit um and um you know i think that my that i will always live in kentucky and my literary imagination will always live in kentucky and so uh it's very important to me to um, not only have been mentored by writers like, you know, either directly or indirectly. Um, Gurney Norman was a direct mentor. Um, 
you take somebody like um, James Baker Hall was a direct mentor. Um, Jane Vance was a, a friend, and I don't think that she would have considered me a mentee. Um, but all of these people have have been in affiliation with with um, with UK and in affiliation as a as a Kentucky writer. Um, Wendell Berry, like the 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 first time Wendell came up to me and sort of quoted something about my work that he loved, I just stood there and cried um, because the, you know, they were all my mentors, like I said, either on the page or face to face. And then to be able to be somewhere in the, the middle of all of this and then to have students that I've taught or, or, or writers that I've mentored, um, be that next generation. Um, it's a great, great place to be, I think. I want to be mindful of your time. Um, the, uh, the reception to the Birds of Opulence have been tremendous. That's got to be flattering and heady and all kinds of things. I wonder if, uh, is there anything you're working on now or thinking about now for next works that you want to give us a little hint of or I am I am working on so many projects, um, but I'm working on um, um, I don't know which one to talk about. But I have well, I have a new book coming out that's poetry uh, that comes out in August, and it's called Perfect Black, um, and it's it's mostly short poems, but there are a couple of lyric essays in there um, too. So I'm excited about that. Um, I've been working on a novel about one of my ancestors um, who was born in 1795 that was brought over as a, a slave from Virginia um, to Kentucky, right at right when the place I'm from, Casey County was being founded in, in around 1808 um, is when um, she was there and she's on, I found documents with her name on them. So I've been working on that. Um and a host of other things, including a book about food. I'm just all over the place, but um, um, enjoying the process. And that's one reason why it takes me so long to write a book, because I'm never writing just one, uh, sort of like a Rolodex. I've got these things coming, uh, popping up, and I work on one for a while and go on to the next one and work on it for a while. Um, but it's all very, very exciting. I'm very excited about these future projects. One last thing I want to ask about is the Kentucky Reads program and these scholar-led discussions in community organizations around the Commonwealth. What are your hopes for those conversations? Well, it's one, it's really nice that they're going to be scholar-led and they're people, uh, there are all kinds of scholars. Some of them are not necessarily academic scholars, but um, people who have read the book and understand the book um, that will lead the discussion. So that's, that's very ex- exciting. And I hope my hope is that the book is just a conduit uh, for these communities uh, to begin having discussions about those unspoken things that we talked about at the beginning of this, of, of our talk today. Um that people will begin to talk about, find the, use the book as a conduit to talk about mental illness, to talk about community, to talk about race, to talk about women's roles and all those other themes that are in the book. 
So that that's what excites me most, that there'll be little pockets of these conversations going on all across the state. Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. The, the, the book, uh, the, the novel in discussion uh, right now is The Birds of Opulence, which is available wherever uh, fine books are sold. I'm sure so please support your local, uh, local bookstores, and I'm sure they can order a copy if you'd like a copy of it. Um, and then you have new poetry coming out in August. We look forward to that. Professor Crystal Wilkinson has been our guest on Behind the Blue, and we thank you so much for being with us and taking the time to talk to us. All right. Thank you. Thank you.